0: hello everybody my name is spencer lugenbuehl i am going to be your host today my special guest for this pilot episode is peter thomas Fornitel. today we're going to be going over maiden buyer pars for this last week at saratoga along with some other special tidbits this is redboard rewind
1: it's the same old- Hello and welcome to Redboard Rewind. This is not Spencer Lubinguele. This is Peter Thomas Fornital. We're breaking format here in this pilot episode just because I thought it might be helpful to have my familiar voice here somewhere in the first couple of minutes bringing in the audience and introducing our new host, Spencer. Spencer, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great, Pete.
1: How are you? I'm excellent. We'll start with an easy one. Spence or Spencer? What do you, how do you actually prefer to be called? Either or. Spencer works. Okay. <laughs> this show is your brainchild that uh, JK went nuts when he heard the idea. How do you see this podcast being different than other horse racing podcasts that are out there?
0: Well, for people who don't know, I, uh, I come and work at Saratoga every year. I work for the Bet Squad. I drive an hour and a half. Every day, back and forth, so three hours total. So I have a lot of free time on the highway to listen to podcasts. (laughs) So I listen to five or six racing podcasts, and a lot of the times it's mostly going over the stakes races. But after I, of course, listen to In the Money first, and then I've listened to three or four others, and it's the same four races, I'm drooling as I get into the driveway. (laughs) So I think that this is just something that is unprecedented. No one's ever done it. And I think that it will help out not just... Veteran players, but I think newer players that want to add concepts or for older players forgotten concepts And I think it's a really good idea. That'll get a lot of you know Twitter stuff going where we can get a lot of good conversations going
1: and the idea is which we haven't quite stated yet, but to look back at recent races with the angle of Why certain horses did what they did and it doesn't have to be just going over Dunbar Road in the Alabama, we can be looking at a maiden race, we can be looking at a cap horse in a claimer that Mm -hmm. might have been the difference in a giant, important handicapping contest. And through these discussions of recently concluded races, to talk about some more evergreen concepts. Spencer, you're somebody who I know uh, has read a lot of handicapping books. one of the things that excited me when this idea was presented to me was an audio version of a handicapping book in many ways. Tell us about your view of handicapping books in general and how you see this show sort of continuing on in that legacy.
0: So for me, I have watched racing off and on my entire life. I probably didn't really start being, you know, intent on watching every race and taking notes until probably California Chrome's year when he won the Derby and stuff like that. So, I then over the last couple of years have gone on a good old Amazon and bought, you know, every single possible handicapping book you can think of from <laughs> James Quinn, Dick Mitchell, uh, Kramer, Byer. And just, I probably have, I think I counted it up last year, 9,000 pages of handicapping material. <laughs> and I'm now this year finally trying to read through everything. And I have Google Docs with just notes on every chapter. And I'm just really trying to build. Whether it's, you know, a six page handicapping colossus of just all different concepts that I can then try and work on myself and see what works for me and what doesn't.
1: Just be careful. books by that Fornital guy. I don't know that I'd trust him. <laughs> yeah. that guy's trouble.
0: He uh, that was actually one of the first books that I ever bought was Six Secrets or The Secrets of Successful Betting. Six Secrets of Successful
1: yeah. Betters, you got so. it. Frank Scatoni, our recent guest on Absolutely. the uh, In the Money shows. And i that was one of the reasons, or one of the ways, I should say, that we really got into the game. Coming mm-hmm. up here, handicapping for the Saratoga Special in its early years, and then having the idea to pitch that book. Basically, uh, a ripoff of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful exactly. People. We just wanted to do the degenerate version, and hopefully you got something out of that book in your
0: journey. I think that one of the best concepts that I believe Carrie if I'm saying the last name right, you
1: nailed it. The late, great Carrie Fodius, a, uh, a great friend of mine.
0: I tried to read his book. It's a little bit complex, but one of the best things I got out of the Six Secrets Successful Betting is. Um, I it, should
1: have come up with a title that wasn't such a tongue twister, right, clearly.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Just call uh, it Six Secrets. Six Secrets. <laughs> so he said that if you don't have a positive ROI in win betting, you should not be touching any other pool for the time being. So for me, a lot of it is I'm very rarely in anything higher than an exacta for, you know, vertical races that I'm doubles strictly for horizontals. I'll play pick fives, pick fours. If I have some friends that want to go in on a ticket, that's fine. But just, I don't think enough people do record keeping and I don't think enough people, you know, I would be surprised if you did a hundred people and said do a hundred races that they would have a positive ROI, it's very I mean, difficult.
1: That's... I mean if you're beating the takeout you're yes. you're doing incredibly well. But I think you've hit on something really important is people's willful ignorance i guess you could say about their own betting and look we're not here to judge no if if this is just disposable income mm-hmm. you know nobody says oh man i'm down 800 at the yankee games yeah. after you buy your 10 game pack or whatever exactly. it is and if, if that's all racing is to you that's fine again no the racetrack in general as we talked about with dan torgman the other day also here from the brentwood we are we're live actually today from one of the rooms at the brentwood which is gorgeous painted like a barn but in all the best possible ways um anyway special location which we appreciate but we talked about it with dan the other day that racing is kind of a no judgment zone in many respects and and this is certainly a case of that but let's say you want you could want to be a winning player i mean that's a great goal a very difficult goal but a great goal but even if you don't necessarily want to be a winning player you just want to be able to go to the track more then losing less is going to enable you to go to the track more and cashing more tickets and having more fun while you're at it. Record keeping can lead you to all those different things. Now, let me ask you, I know you're supposed to be the host, but I, I, you know, it's, it's a habit. I can't help it. I'll, yes. let you, I'll let you take over here in a second, I promise.
0: But record keeping, how do you do it? So for me, I literally just have an Excel spreadsheet and I have it based off of every type of possible bet I make uh the class levels and the surface that way at the end of a week month six month a quarter whatever you want to do i can really break down if i'm doing terrible in turf sprints well then my bankroll for that next quarter or however long i know i'm gonna do it for will be cut in half because i want to make sure that i am now relearning what i'm doing wrong and i would probably take twice as long when when i'm trying to wager on that race and i'm taking twice as long in the result charts to see what i'm missing on a track profile or anything like that
1: i admire that dedication i mean that's really what you need to do it reminds me very much of working with uh, mike maloney Mm -hmm. on betting with an edge where he talks about record keeping and he also talks about something else that i've seen you do a tremendous job of playing on paper in other words times when your bankroll in mike's case when he was uh A student at EKU the Harvard of the Ohio Valley Conference he he uh, didn't have the big bankroll so he'd spend time he and his friends it was like a game they'd go through the paper uh, when they already had the results and and he'd make selections and that's something that takes amazing discipline it's something that I know that you've been doing this meet when a little cash strapped how much
0: has that helped you in your horseplay I think that even if let's say you know who the winner is in a race and you go back and try and find him the best thing to do with that would be with, would be for $20 plus horses to me. Everyone can find the top buyer horse that won it four to five. But how do you find a horse that I'm going to hopefully talk about in a little bit that I had uh, last week that was a solid $20 horse that not a lot of people saw, but it also you know took into other things, pedigree notes, stuff like that. Maybe you can't do that when you're looking through the woodbine form from three weeks ago, but I mean, my entire desk my girlfriend like she wants to start recycling i have saratoga forms from last year that i still have the last doublet finger lakes on a rainy Wait a day that second. i still want to do
1: i gotta stop you right there you're a young you unlike me you're a young person yes. and you're talking about piles of paper i remember uh when interviewing andy serling uh, for six secrets of successful betters and talking about the stacks of racing forms and how they'd ended relationships uh-huh. you're young isn't this stuff supposed to be digital
0: yeah, for for me I do have digital. I have a form in front of me now. I have my iPod, or my iPad next to me. Nothing will ever it's the first time I ever did it. Pen and paper. Digital is always fun, but pen and paper is still a really cool way to go. And even sometimes if I have my notes on my iPad, there's not much room anymore left in the in the paper form. So like it's nice to be able to just kind of like, you know, do short little concept notes and you know for something like formulator I've been taking notes the entire Saratoga meet of what the horses have done out of it. I've found more key races than you would ever imagine, and I've found weak key races where nobody's run well out of it. Well, that's we're we're
1: getting it. We're unpacking some really good stuff here. I do want to loop back. We're going to go forward, but we'll loop back first, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about record keeping. Mm -hmm. The great news about record keeping is. Spencer, extremely diligent. And at my best, I have done the, exactly what you said, the Excel mm-hmm. file. But even when you're not doing that, if you have an ADW, if you're a Naira player, if you're an Amwager player, wherever it is that you uh, play the horses, uh, Keeneland Select, another one I'll throw out there, you have the opportunity to go back and look at your play and make the same kind of assessment and do it without any extra legwork. Maloney says... 50s you know take 15 minutes a day and i'm gonna i guarantee you you're gonna significantly increase your roi some of us especially those of us who are more in the we're doing this for fun mm-hmm. camp you don't necessarily have the 15 minutes a day when you're talking about looking at your results on an adw it's more like 15
0: seconds not even 15 seconds we have two dark days a week at mostly every major track if monday and tuesday are for like with the wife and kids there's a solid hour you can spend even of just dissecting that stuff. It's two clicks on an ADW and you're done. <laughs> so, I mean, it's the reason that there are winning players and losing players. If you have that disposable income and that's what you want to do, that's fine. But for the people who are complaining who want to be winners, those are the type of people that we should be trying to beat to begin with. And this is a way you can do it. Yeah.
1: And, and it, again, it doesn't take much time and it makes a lot of sense. You also mentioned another very basic concept that I love mm-hmm. and has changed my life as a gambler. And especially if you're a gambler in a, in a, a romantic relationship or a partnership with another human, this is a fantastic idea. The idea of a dedicated bankroll. Yes. Tell me about how you've, uh, how you had developed your bankroll. And, you know, it sounds like you're, you're at the, at the nub of one at the moment or, or, but but, but talk about the, why is it, let me ask it this way. Why is it important to you to have a dedicated bankroll?
0: For people who still want to go out to the races and enjoy it. But let's say, you know, you don't have all the money in the world. If you take, $20 $20 out of a paycheck sure that doesn't seem like a lot to people who are you know betting in 1863 or something like that <laughs> but it's just okay so you have 20 bucks for the week that's one day of races fine if you're a weekend warrior the Saturday races there's 10 races you can bet $2 a race or however much you want to bet having the dedicated bankroll is just don't go to the dreaded ATM machine don't just pull money out of your wallet it should be completely 100% separate
1: it helps mentally and again, in relationship terms, I mean, so key. If at the beginning of the year you can set aside whatever your, it's, it's a budget. The exactly. same way you'd budget to buy your season tickets. I don't know why I said the Yankees before. I clearly should have said the Mets. Of course, <laughs> but, I'm a Mets fan here. <laughs> a couple of us long suffering here, but the the idea of having that money separately, it also I just think it makes you make much better decisions because you know even if you get to the end of your bankroll it's not like the oh my betting's done for the year you can scrape together another bankroll but it's important to it's important to experience for me in gambling the idea of going broke it's that will strengthen you it'll let you keep you honest with yourself let you know where you are and you know if you have to dig back in okay you can dig back in it happened to me up here last year yeah. at this exact time mm-hmm. famously i went home it was the uh I guess it was endorsed beating the 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 highly high, ahead of endorsed beating ahead of plan. Yes. Last year, literally sent me home to yeah. my mother. I, I I got so beat up. Um, I played so well that day. I did everything right, and it all went wrong. And I got to the end of a bankroll, and I said, I need a few days to get off and get out of here, and you know, spend some time, allocated some new money, started again, and finished the meet okay, but. That idea of keeping that money separate it's just it's so helpful and that might be that almost might be my number one piece of advice for horse players looking to just
0: enjoy their time at the track more it has to be because if you look at it let's say first of all another thing someone does is a lot of people they just go race by race trying to handicap and they're like okay 50 here and 20 there but your best bet is until the ninth race and let's say you started with 100 for the day, and you're like, okay, I'm going to bet at least $50. And you get to that race, and oh, you're down to $15. And the horse wins. Well, now you've still had a losing day. And if you had just waited and passed a few races, which not enough people do either, passing races is a big concept. It's the same thing with the dedicated bankroll. There's so many steps that you can take to really not going broke. But going broke, it's also good if it happens. And the, sometimes, I say it, the worst thing you can do is just get right back in the next day. Maybe if you go broke because you're putting so much effort into it, take like you said four or five days don't even ra- open a racing form i've done that where i've taken a month off if i get busy with work at my rest at the restaurant i work at or anything like that i come back and i start off the early pick three at finger legs three for three three straight winners and i'm like <laughs> well, where was this a month ago sometimes you just need that break you need the you need the mental
1: fortitude though to endure that uh, yeah i mean maloney's gonna get a lot of calls on this show at least when i'm on but uh, the idea that if you're not passing winners, you're betting too many races. Yes. That's a powerful idea. Absolutely. And I is. think it's right. And I will amend, I'm not as disciplined as you. I have a lot of trouble. I mean, yes, I can certainly pass races. But I, it would be very hard for me to pass a day, say. But the idea of, and this is a Steve Davidowitz, another late great, yeah. a Steve Davidowitz concept, the action bet yeah. versus the average bet versus the prime play and making sure those numbers are different enough, right? If, you're, if your prime play is, if your average play is 20 and your prime play is 100, your actions, you bet, should, it should just be two bucks. Or it should be, you go on Derby Wars and you play in a contest. And Absolutely. And then you have a route in every race for almost no money if you're playing in, you know, a, one of the, the survivor yep. type contests. But I'm okay with that idea. Action bet versus average bet
0: versus prime Absol- play. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, the prime play should be, if you have $100, you should have 75% of the dollars of the day be prime bets. I think and that's 25 right. 25 should be action. I think that's right. It's three out of four. That way, I think the old rule is like, if you hit one of three, you'll break even. If you hit two of three, winning day, three of three, go, go enjoy the steakhouse.
1: <laughs> Christmas in July. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Or August, as the case may be.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, Pete, let's get into our first concept. So, one of the races is actually one of, from the first day of the week, Wednesday. It was a race six. It was on the inner turf at a mile and 16. It was a state bred maiden special weight. In this race, I believe a lot of the money went on to number three, Astoria Kitten, was even money. What to like about this horse? Well, top turf sire, dirt sprint family, three of four who won. Uh, one sibling had made 150 k and there was a 2X turf winner in that family. The main thing for me in races like this is I always look at buyer par. So the buyer par for this race was a 68. Based on an old uh, Quinn reference in the condition. Uh, that actually condition sounds high
1: par. to me. I, I would think if you looked at more recent races, I'd t- I would definitely take the under for whatever it's worth. Okay. But not not hugely so.
0: I'm just going off the buyer number here.
1: They put it. They popped sixty-eight in the form. It just feels, given given that we're dealing with state breads, mm-hmm. uh, I'm surprised they put it that high. That that. But but I mean, you know, that's just that's just one man's opinion. Of course. Um, and that Astoria kitten you mentioned. This yes. was a this was a universal tip horse. This was one. You know, you hear tips at Saratoga all the time. Mm-hmm. Astoria kitten. I think the parking lot attendant told me. <laughs> and you know, Harvey <laughs> Pack. Who I had the pleasure with working with years ago? Of course. If you hear it, a tip from one person, bet it. Yes. If you hear a tip from three people, book it. <laughs> a story akin would have been in the book it category, but there was clearly a lot of word beyond. I mean, there are obvious merits as you pointed out, but this was one that that definitely had all the buzz in the world. And this is a meet where, because the buzz horses have kind of
0: all been winning. Yes. I think it, it the, the love might have gone a little too far. So, for me, there's two things I looked at that didn't make this horse my top choice. Uh, Danny Gargan is only 18% on turf. I know that that number doesn't sound bad, but when you think of Danny Gargan and Carmouche, you think a lot more of dirt sprinting. Carmouche loves to get horses out of the gate. And I don't think that Carmouche has been too strong of a turf jockey this meet. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. But when I look through, uh, a horse that I really liked. Uh, that I made my top pick was Kiss and Run the Nine, Jose Lascana, who I think is the most underrated, maybe not so much anymore after winning the Belmont Jockey title, but underrated turf riders. And Sherry DeVoe, of course, is the ex-Chad Brown training assistant for Lady Eli. So to me, she's new. Maybe not many people know who she is, but I know that she's obviously trained Lady Eli, so she must know something about horses going long in the grass.
1: Won the race earlier this meet. She's married to the famed Bloodstock agent, David Engordo, who picked out Zenyatta. She's, a, she's an industry insider yes. who a lot of casual players might not know who she is, but obviously somebody I expect to be winning a lot more races up here before all this said and done. And Kiss and Run was another about whom there was some positive word, this daughter of
0: a So uh, the third horse I landed on who actually ended up winning this race was English breeze. David Donk has been absolutely ice cold this meet at this point. I think he was one for 31. So I did a lot of pedigree notes and I tried to, for all the, you know, baby races and just maiden races, uh, for the sire. I just noticed that he improves the longer distances the English dam, channel. I mean, the, yeah. the dam had won 250,000. Uh, the lone sibling at the time was Oh, for seven at two and one for 17 lifetime. Not that good, but, if you think for someone who's so ice cold, Manny Franco hasn't had the best meet. This horse was nine to one. I would expect this horse to be double digits. So why he was hanging around in single digits? So when I looked back at the race, I said, okay, Astoria Kitten's even money, and I have two other horses that I know will be above three to one. So I said, let me come out with a double win bet. I'm going to try and beat what I think is a vulnerable favorite, and it he got it done. That was probably Manny Franco's one of his best rides of the meet. The horse won by I believe four and three quarter lengths so yep. I mean pretty much smashed these guys to bits uh, we got back at the buyer par uh, for which I think is 68 you lower it in James Quinn's book on routes you can lower it up to six points to get within the buyer par and uh, this horse came back and ran a 62 the only horse within the buyer par the second place horse ran a 54 overall is this race going forward going to be a strong race no but on the day I had the, I had a winner at a really good price of 9 to 1 I
1: love the point you made about this horse actually being bet. You know, we talk about, people talk about reading the tote board, and it's such a, it's an art, not a science. Yeah. And the idea that a horse like this, for donk, given the meat he's having, into the teeth of the universal tip, Astoria's kitten, and the pretty well fancied, in terms of tips, kiss and run number nine for this horse to be nine to one. There was a little bit of signal that this one was, that this was actually, you make the case that this one was live on the board. And that's the kind of tote board reading that I love Mm -hmm. in these races. And I think that point is great about the par. You know, I, I suggested and you know, time form actually had it much more similar to your number than mine. I just, for me, I would allow horses who'd ran in this race a lot of leeway Mm -hmm. just having it i guess it's a very variable condition when you're talking about two two two-year-old new york maidens yeah um but i would expect i mean any horse that had run a 58 i would have expected to be potentially live in here but the idea to, to look to the firsters ended up paying off great dividends I want you to talk. I know I said I was going to let you host, but I can't help it. That's fine. Uh, I I love that concept of betting the two horses to win against the overbet chalk. Yeah. Tell me about how you came up with that, and and let's talk about that idea for a minute.
0: Uh, Another handicapping book. I believe it was Mark Kramer's book on form. I can't remember the exact name and title of the book. Uh, He has it to where I, I think people like picking winners. That's the debut book. Everyone, go get picking winners. It's a great book. In the 70s, picking winners got you positive. Now you have to be so much smarter. There's computer players. There's so much other obstacles in in the way. And I just think if I know that there's going to be an overbet chalk or a horse that... So he was even money. So if you look at a value line, he would have to win 50 out of 100 races, which he very might well do. But if I'm betting this race only 10 times, well, all I had to do was pick the five right one time. And this was the one time. And they also, if you look at it, this horse could probably, by winning by so much on a turf on a turf course, four and three quarters is a lot to win on the turf. So this horse could probably win two or three more times. So nine to one is just such a juicy overlay for me. And I, for me, when I look at trainer stats, stuff like that, Donk being ice cold, I usually just toss those kind of people out. But I just really took a closer look. And I've done a lot more pedigree work this year. That's the one thing I really wanted to express on was that I need to get better with pedigree. And it's so and it takes time. If you you have to put you two have hours, to dig. Aside, you have to put two hours aside to just do a card. People are saying, Oh, I get a card done in an hour. I'm like, that to me seems impossible. So just being able to, you know, in the Kramer book, he does it by contenders. If you only like one horse, if he's even money or better, bet the horse. Two contenders, the first contender has to be two to one or higher, the second contender five to two. And there's some for three and four. If there's more than four contenders, you should be passing the race because you have no idea what's about to happen.
1: That's very good. I mean, I found myself in violation of that a whole lot. Uh Let me make... There's a few points to pick up on. One is about Donk. And yes, one for 31 looks bad. The the last few days, he had... I wish I could remember the specifics. It's all a blur up here. But there was a race... I don't know, maybe it was the previous Sunday where he had two horses in a race, both of whom ran really well and just had terrible trips. But when you, sort, when you see that, when you see the cold trainer, but they're running second with a trip, maybe they're getting ready to break through especially at this point in a meet where I remember uh, Jim Mazer, another guy from yes. six secrets of successful betters used to talk about this meet in terms of tortoises and hares, yes. the hares who get off to the quick start there. The horses are laid out. They're ready to fire in the first three weeks of the meet. And then the tortoises who might need the run over the surface or whatever it is, and are going to heat up later in the meet. I think you can make a case uh, that English breeze made sense on that, on that basis as well. So, That was very clever, and I just want to tie it back to an idea we talked about earlier about passing winners. Yeah, I mean, you hear about the the best horse in Gargan's Barn or whatever stories were out there about this thing, and you want to be on the winner. You want to show that you're an insider, and you've heard the word, and and you made it happen. But, you know, I can also make the case that that's the type of winner you're supposed to
0: pass. (laughs) if you have like for me if I if he was the only horse I liked I would have bet him but having three other horses in the race not to mention turf racing bigger fields a lot more problems with getting in trouble so a bigger price required I'm assuming usually Yeah, I, I would like to say especially like if you want a speed horse you can take less money because he's supposed to be out in the lead as long as there's no other crazy stuff going on where they're going 22 and 1 to the quarter but for a closer he has to get the right pace up front and avoid trouble Well, that's two things already that a Speed horse doesn't have to worry about. So you need a a larger price. And with surf racing, you know, if you've noticed how Chad's training all of his surf horses this year, none of them go to the lead. And all he does is he just wants them on the rail and tipping out. Most of them are winning, but if eight out of 10 are winning, those other two are going to be really juicy prices in those races that Chad's not winning right now.
1: It's it's the way that you look at price. I mean, it does remind me very much of uh, Mark Kramer, mm-hmm. who we were talking about before. And I know value lines are a concept you want to get in on. We're very, I love the idea of having you on the team here, Spencer, because we're so selection oriented. Yes. I mean, it's, and that's the nature of most horse racing podcasts. You know, we're here to, we are still here to pick winners and try to identify horses who are going to give the value in the pick sequences and things like that and when somebody like JK you know we joke all the time about JK and how much he likes chalk but the fact of the matter is the guy picks plenty of prices too yes. <laughs> and when he's on a price Henley's you know, Joy yeah right when when Andy Serling is on a price yeah. sometimes that's the best information that people can get but this other way of looking at the world that we uh, you know the way that our podcast has developed it's developed to be selection oriented and that's You know, the way that I play, that's okay. The way that JK plays, that's okay. But this way that you look at the world, I think for a lot of the listeners out there, it's the right way to look at the world a whole lot of the time. And I'm really glad to have that point of view represented on the In The Money Airwaves.
0: Absolutely, Pete. I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. All right, Pete. So for the next race we have, I have race number four on 8.15. It's a maiden special weight going five and a half furlongs on the turf. The buyer power is 72, so for me, if you drop it about 5 points, 67 will get it done. Um, a lot of people I hear, I don't know if you're included, don't really like turf sprints at all. They're tricky.
1: Um, they often end up being, even when they look like they're going to melt down, they never do. But I've sort of just tried to go with it and say hey, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to bet against horses who've run good numbers who are going to be too far back. And if you can use them as de facto takeout eliminators, I I don't hate them, but I understand. They're they're laboratories in chaos. We've been talking a lot about um, handicapping books on the show. I don't know if you've ever read Charles Carroll's book. I think it was just called Handicapping Speed. I have not. It's amazing because what he did... He's the first guy that ever got me reading about chaos theory mm-hmm. because he uses chaos theory to talk about sprint races, even quarter horse races. And just like all the little things that can go wrong in a sprint race, that would be an excuse. In a longer race, some momentary bobble or whatever, there's enough time that it... Well, of course. It, but in a sprint race, and so you know, the idea, chaos theory that is often summed up with a great line about, you know, a butterfly flapping its wings in, you know, <laughs> Mongolia causes a tsunami in California or whatever. I mean, I'm butchering it. But the idea is that these seemingly tiny things lead to huge changes. I mean, to me, turf sprints are a great laboratory for chaos. And so, I mean, I so I understand why people don't like them, but I kind of enjoy them in
0: a perverse way. Okay, but it's, that's interesting. That's interesting. I know JK, one thing that I've picked up on him in the last few weeks, he said how he likes to take horses that are on the lead. Always. And Last few weeks, last few years. Last few years. It's, it's interesting <laughs> uh, because if you read through all turf books, everyone says it's late pace in class. Usually on the turf. I mean, turf routes, that's right. And I think that people get that confused and they think, turf everything, turf sprints, turf correct. Turf and sprints are more like dirt races. They very much are. They're more, much more attritional. So in this race, the uh, like I said, the buyer par was a 72. So I dropped it about five points to a 67.
1: And the idea behind that, just to clarify, that's just, you want to cast a little bit wider net. If you can run within a couple of lengths
0: of that par, it's still, you're a contender. Because if you're not, a, if horses that are running 50s and the buyer is a 60, you're not a contender. You're not fast enough based on that. Now, of course, second time starters, if, James Quinn's book. They're supposed to bump eight to 13 points just based on one race. So I've caught, you know, many five to two shots that, you know, just improve like that and beat the even money favorite because he ran a 70. He digresses because he's raced four or five times.
1: Yeah, the other note I'll make on that is it, it a bit depends on the trainer. Yes. There are some trainers you almost count on the moving up 15 because they use that first race to create the the foundation and then there are other barns and this is more and more the case in 2019 Todd Pletcher, the, the, maybe the best example. They, in my view, they arrive fully formed. So they will improve because that first race they often say is like four or five workouts. Absolutely. So the Pletcher's, I'm sure, still improve. But I mean, I'm not doing this based on data. Sorry, John Camardo. But <laughs> if, if I'm going to guess that the you know the average Ian Wilkes improves thirteen to twenty points, the average Pletcher three to yeah, five, probably you know that kind the, of thing.
0: The best, the best one that I use a ton is Linda Rice. I. She's 11% first time starter. She's 32% second time Mm -hmm. out. If you're betting a Linda Rice first time starter, it better be the goods. You better be getting Jose or one of the top riders. And even then they still lose, but then second time out, they still win at four to five, but you would have saved money already by not betting them first time out. It's a great way of looking at the world. Uh, so in this race, the number four for our man, Todd Fletcher, John Velasquez, uh, Won the race as a first time starter. Uh into mischief is a good two-year-old sire. Tremendous run my, right now.
1: Nobody hotter than Into Mischief.
0: My guess was at five and a half. He had good numbers as well, but I thought it was probably more dirt because he was only a nine percent turf s- sprint sire. And I said the horse probably wants longer. Whoops. <laughs> uh, the buyer he came back with was an eighty-three, and the second place horse. Art Collector came back with a 73 buyer. So the first two horses are above the par. There was a bunch of horses in this race to me. Possible key race scenario. I would really like to look back and I'm excited to see horses that come out of this race. And I might be onto something to wear the fifth and sixth place. Now they may ship out of town. They may go somewhere else. But if you're a spot play player and these horses are going off at 10, 15 to one at parks. Well, that's a big deal. This these horses will, you know, still improve your bankroll. Just I know people say stay at one circuit, but if you're staying at one circuit, you can still find those spot plays of your circuit outside in the world.
1: Horses to watch. I mean, e- Equibase. You know, you can keep tabs on these horses, and you can make an exception even if you're mostly a Naira player when these horses show up in other places. We talked before about the dam side pedigree. I didn't see a whole lot of it with this Mystic Lance, a lot, um, and then. What do you think? Did the tote board offer any clues here? I mean, are you, is this just one that you're happy to let go and beat you? Or is this one you felt like there was anything to second guess after the fact when this one, you know, 7-2 in the morning line goes off at 9-5? to 5? You could argue that that alone might have put you on to use at least defensively in picks in the way that I do business.
0: So for me, I have, you know, my mom comes up to the track. My aunt, she, they're, my aunt's a big Todd Pletcher fan. Johnny V, whenever she sees it, she just bets it. <laughs> which I think are a lot of people. Now, Todd didn't have the best meat last year. And something that I'm starting to realize as I read through a couple of other pedigree books is with two-year-olds, you really want to look at the sires. For three-year-olds, you really want to look at the trainers. That's interesting. I now, mean, I've never even thought of that. That's interesting. Now, like the one excuse to that is Wesley because Wesley just owns every two-year-old in the country and they go to ask it and they win him tons of money.
1: Well, early in the year. I mean, yeah. uh, you can argue up here... There might be some equity betting against him, and yes. something the two-year-olds for him debuting up here. Something probably went wrong, yes, because he's buying them to win at Keeneland and yes, go over there right. and impress now, the people in the, their fancy top hats.
0: Todd went, you know, a little sour last year. He came back this year. He's done okay. The biggest thing was I thought Johnny V. And I'm not into bashing jockeys at all. No, we don't. We don't do I that think, on the In the Money airwaves. I think he was, you know, he's usually 18, 20%. percent. He's been under ten percent you know, until this week out of every jockey out of the top 10 in the standings right now, he had the most winners last week with five wins. So if you're looking to kind of get back on the Johnny V, I don't know how much of a difference it'll be based on the odds, but he's getting tortoise and hairstyle. He was the tortoise. Now he's starting to really fire hot.
1: Uh, that's very interesting observation. And we've talked about this on the the flagship about yeah. how the Ortiz brothers were so ridiculously hot early on yeah. that it was getting to a point where one of them could ride a goat, and it would be eight to one. Absolutely, you know, it, just just unbelievable the way that the market. I mean, that's the thing. You know, people talk about jockey handicapping. Yeah. Serious horse players will will, and and you know, I'm in this half the time. I'm I'm not good at that game. Half the time, I don't know who's riding my horse, honestly. Yeah. And it's not that I don't think jockeys matter. They matter tremendously. But the if anything, the public. Overvalues what they represent, and absolutely. I think what we've seen from the Ortiz brothers at this meet is a great example of that. They're riding lights out, they're amazing, they're absolutely a, an attribute on a horse that you're going to bet. But if the crowd not only sees it but overreacts to it, I just that's not signal, that's just no, it becomes noise
0: at some point. I, I think a lot of stuff, and like I said, I, I'm a big formulator user, I look at the jockey stats and trainer stats, and two things I really picked up on was. There's only two 20% riders right now at the meet. It's Jose and Javier Castellano. Irad's like middle 18%, 17 19% like that. Uh, Javier is crushing it on the turf. And I think that also has to be because he's riding first out, it seems, for Chad. Which I think is surprising when you look at it. the top trainer does not have the Ortiz brothers riding first for him on turf races. And Javier's got many more turf races than dirt races. Another thing that I noticed was Steve Asmussen so far doesn't have a win in turf or routing. That is He's interesting. Like o for twenty for both, a little bit over. He has all his wins dirt sprinting. He's,
1: He's got a lot of a lot of good young horses, yes. so that's all that's gonna be shorter races but, and it's very interesting. It's not and when Spencer brings this up, it's not like, oh, he can't do it. It's just you're still what, People like that, you're still paying for their name brand value. The, the price on the board is still being discounted for their name brand value. But maybe that's not what they're all about right now. And, I mean, Asmussen, he's not, you know, in New York anyway. He's not known
0: as a turf guy, so it makes yeah. sense. And also his top rider, Ricardo Santana, has had a terrible meet on the grass as well. So if I see Asmussen with Ricardo 7-2, to 5-2, to two, and he's coming off of an 8-1 to one morning line, I think that it's not so much they know as much as it's it's Asmussen-Santana. Everyone sees the good ROI for the jockey-trainer combination from a couple of years ago. Meanwhile, they haven't been able to get one winner on the turf yet this year.
1: It's very interesting. I mean, when you can poke holes in connections who are that strong, that's the kind of thing that could really help you juice up a bet or a pick sequence
0: somewhere along the line. All right, Pete, so we got one last race to cover. We're going to go to Sunday at Saratoga, race number six. It was... An open maiden special weight for Phillies, six and a half furlongs was the distance. The buyer par in the racing form is a 74. I would always drop that five or six points to catch the other horses in my net, so it would be a 69. So for everything we've been going over, we've been talking about how first-timers can jump up and beat experienced horses. Well, this was the exact opposite time. The number six, Mrs. Danvers, and the number four, Finite, had both run numbers appropriate to par, and they showed it in this race running again 1 2 I
1: this I appreciate you bringing this race up because I'm a huge Mrs Danvers fan
0: as we know from Twitter
1: Ex- and my column at thattheraces.com I mean she was I mean I think everybody who watched her debut put her on a watch list it was it was ridiculous she didn't break it all she just brought herself into the race just showed immense talent and even at that I mean that was just a very live looking race that race that sweet kisses won I mean, on the numbers I'm looking at, the top three, Sweet Kisses, Finite, and Mrs. Danvers, all ran above the par. So they come back, but, you know, Finite off the perfect trip and Mrs. Danvers, yes, in reality, Finite finished ahead of Mrs. Danvers. But if you look at the world, as Mike Maloney taught us in Betting with an Edge, in terms of, you know, not just the figures, but the ability figures, if you look at the ability, those two horses showed. I mean, I, I almost couldn't have imagined the world in which Finite would finish ahead of Mrs. Danvers the next time out. But, of course, Finite's figure was so strong, you absolutely had to keep in the mix. And, I mean, there's more to say about this race, but I'm sorry. People are going to think I'm crazy. We've talked about how you can pass winners, and that's okay. 95 cents on the dollar on this filly was a gift.
0: For me, when I look at it, if like you talk about ability figures, lunged at start? is the comment line in the DRF. Most horses that lunge at the start do not go on to really run as well as this horse did. So, okay, she ran a 70. If I see lunged at start, she probably ran more like a 75, if we're looking at ability figures, which now puts her above the perfect trip of finite, which you can also lower if you listen to Mike Maloney. Perfect trip should be downgraded. Trouble trip should be upgraded. Still, for me, four to five, probably a little bit too short, but this is where I can fix it. I would have played finite to win. I would have played a pretty hefty bet in the exacta straight the other way. And the exacta came back, I think, a little short of $6. Is it amazing? No, but you have the first and second choice. And if you're passing races, this is the kind of race where the $6 you were going to bet on the three horses that might have lost. Now you have a $6 exacta.
1: Yeah, I mean, six to one in the exacta, is incredible to me. I mean, and I'll put it this way. I feel like you see these overbet favorites or you see these shorties in... Cheaper races and chaotic races that I have no problem passing. But when you have a horse, I'll take a short number on a horse that I identified, you know, on July 19th or whatever that race was. Um, if If I'm waiting for them to run for a month, all of a sudden, four to five sounds really, really good. I mean, to me, I mean... Look, I'm not saying I would have bet at one to five, but if yeah. you made me go through the exercise of a value line, I mean, I feel like the horse was, I feel like she was 75% to win the race. I'm not even joking. Yeah. And when you watch the way the race played out, it only um, enhances that view because the other funny thing about this race and what's interesting to consider about Mrs. Danvers going forward, and I talked about this with Paul Matisse on the flagship yesterday, they were not riding to win that race. The no, number one goal was to educate Mrs. Danvers yesterday. They held her in behind. Joelle's ripping her face off. <laughs> um, it was, you know, it, it created some anxiety for me who took a strong position. Oh, of course. Because, you know, of the contacts in the UK. Um, she was odds against over there. Let's just say it that way. And the boys were betting. and You know, when the boys <laughs> win, I win. So it, it was, there were some anxious moments, but I get it. I mean, they're trying... I mean, I know it sounds completely insane. It's whatever day it is, August 20th. Yes. I mean, this looks like an Oaks filly. And you're not going to win the Oaks just going to the lead and blitzing overmatched maidens. You're going to win the Oaks by learning to get in behind and take a little dirt and settle and know you're going to get your chance to run. And I feel like the partnership between Joelle and Mrs. Danvers is going to benefit. And this is a race going forward. Again, we talked about ability figures. The figure here, whatever you have it as, to me, you can project a lot based on the fact that the total goal wasn't winning. They, they were educating her. I feel like that had to cost her some time. And then the fact that you're looking at a yard, a yard, what am I in England, a barn, and a sire in Tappet that you just expect to keep getting better. I mean, it, it it's not nuts to see this one running some monster numbers towards the end of this year and certainly going into the three-year-old season. I'll admit it. I'm a huge Mrs. Danvers fan.
0: And not to say that the first years didn't run bad, but just looking at the first couple horses, Jimmy Jerkins, 7% first-time starter. Rudy's not that bad 11%. Jaime Mejia's 0 for 23. I'm not saying that all these horses were going to be prepped, but if you really get down to the nitty-gritty and you're not finding much on this card... To pass in this instance, if you've looked at enough maiden races, and a lot of people have trouble, they and I think the trouble with people that ha- they haven't maiden races is they just don't put in enough work, maybe with the pedigree, workouts, stuff like that. If I see a trainer that's 0 for 23 and he doesn't have any flashy works, I'm crossing the horse out instantly and I'm just going on to the next horse. Maiden races. Should take a little longer for the pedigree stuff. That's how we found English Breeze. That's how we found that. In this race, this race could have been handicapped. And I take a long time to handicap my races. I would have had this race done in five seconds. (laughs) And just and the the par. It's really
1: for you. It's all about the par and then the relative trips of Mrs. Danvers. Exactly.
0: Since I know that she's lunged. Okay, so she ran a 70. Now it's a 75. And she actually ended up running an 82 in this race. So, like you said, Oaks, Philly, I... The Oaks was like a mid 90 this year with Serengeti Empress, who was another one that was on the lead. Like you need to take dirt in your face. It's the main reason why the Derby preps are so hard every year because everyone's like hidden scroll 104 buyer in in the wet. Don't bring up a sore subject. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) But it's just, people just need to realize that this game to win is so much more difficult than just buying the racing form as you're walking into the track. That to me is like a death sentence.
1: It's, I mean, again, if you're just looking to have fun, no judgments, but if you want to win, I feel like these are the kind of conversations that can, that can really help you going forward. At least we hope that's the case. That's, that's, uh, that's the idea.
0: All right. I want to thank everybody for joining me and my, one of my best friends, PTF here on the show. Uh, a couple of special things about me for people who have never heard of me. Uh, once again, my name is Spencer Luganbiel. I am on Twitter at handy underscore capper. Uh, I also have a website free of charge. Very many remember Don uh, It's called the daily Gallup.net. I have weekly stuff out all the time. Colonial downs right now. We're covering Saratoga Del Mar. We're going to have a podcast every Friday by Joe Wolf called board here's in bourbon. He's going to be going over. I believe it is the uh, personal ensign this week with uh Elite and midnight Bisu. So if you guys can come over, check it out, you know, Give me some love. I'd really appreciate it. Other than that, I will see you guys next time.